0: You're listening to the sermon podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbapt.org. Now, today's sermon. As many of you know, uh, I am not the regular preaching pastor here at CBC, but I do enjoy uh, that privilege and the treat To preach this morning. As the Lord would see fit, it's also New Year's Eve, so I hope that you have all enjoyed some sweet moments with your families and those that you love over the last couple of weeks. Preaching is always both a burden and a joy. In one sense, the gravity of speaking for the Lord should appropriately give weight and responsibility to the obligation to do it well, On the other hand, the pastors here at CBC all recognize that one of the primary ways that our church is equipped each and every week is through the preached word. Further, as we prepare a sermon, it ends up being devotional for our own souls, so it really is a privilege to have the pulpit this New Year's Eve. With that said, most guys who are not the regular preaching pastors will get asked what they're preaching on or what they're thinking about going into the sermon. That is not the primary question that I have received from many of you guys, however. Apparently, given my notoriety for wearing flip-flops, the burning question for many of you was whether or not I would be in closed-toed shoes this morning. Have no fear, I will not lead us that far astray. Uh, further, in the Lord's providence, we have a four-month-old puppy at home who has eaten all of my flip-flops. So that wasn't even an option this morning. But if I preach this summer, you've been warned. <laughs> Naturally, reflective or not, we all tend to give a little consideration this time of the year to where we have been in 2023, where we are going in 2024. We tend to ask questions like How am I doing? How is my family doing? How is work? What I want to change? What could be better? In acknowledging that, I think it's good this morning to turn our attention to the church in Corinth. There are a lot of questions that could be asked of this church, and for those familiar with this letter, things are not going all that well. If anyone needed some proverbial year-end advice for living their next life, best life next year, it would be these folks. So I think that we'll all be helped today to consider how Paul approaches these saints early on in this letter, to recognize that how he appeals to Christ for them, and then makes that the root of how they should live. To see in your own life that the way that you should live in 2024 is guided by objective realities that are already true of you, and because it is grounded in the wisdom of God, which is Jesus Christ our Lord, that is as sure as the risings of the sun. So let's go to the Lord briefly in prayer and ask him to help us this morning. Father, your goodness and your mercy are never ceasing. You are always faithful and we are so often faithless. We fall so short of your glory and your law makes that so plain to us. But through Christ, you have reconciled us to yourself. Teach us today to love your law in light of the gospel. May you give us great rest and great hope as we seek to live godly lives that honor you, amen. So as the other elders often do, for you note takers in the room, I will try to help you uh, because I am also a note taker and I'm a manuscript guy and so I will give you the headers for your notes. So we will start by just briefly talking about our agenda for this morning. I have a couple of goals. We will begin by considering the purpose and the context of 1 Corinthians. This will, in turn, help us in asking and answering questions like, what is good preaching? Why does Paul not just lean on this wayward church with the full weight of the law? Why on earth does Paul call this church sanctified in verse 2? Why is the word of the cross folly? Why can't the world know God through human wisdom? What does Paul mean when he says that in Christ, he has become righteousness, sanctification, and redemption for us in verse 30? Through that, we'll first consider God's law and God's gospel in the text this morning and why we are careful to distinguish between the two. We'll then turn our attention to the sufficiency of Christ in all of our lives that he really is our righteousness or justification. He really is our sanctification, and he is ultimately our redemption for glorification. My aim is to remind you this morning that as we look to 2024 and the years beyond, that Christ for you is your ultimate hope, regardless of the season of life you currently find yourself in. Introduction to 1 Corinthians. So this is a Pauline epistle, as many of you are aware. Uh, Paul wrote it to the church in Corinth while he was in Ephesus on his third missionary journey. It was written in the early fifties AD, so 20 years or so after Christ's death and resurrection. Corinth itself was a bustling, prosperous port city in the Roman empire. Sitting between the Aegean and Mediterranean seas, it was an important place of trade and it was a place where cultures mixed and religions mingled. There was money, the arts, entertainment, good food, and good drink, as well as all the sinful desires that those otherwise good things can elicit. Paul planted this church in the first couple of years of the 50s with Priscilla and Achilla, who were also Jews and tent makers and friends from Rome. They all spent about 18 months or so getting this church established with Apollos who was already living in Corinth at the time and then Paul traveled on to Ephesus. Let that sink in for just a moment. Paul, Priscilla, Aquila, Apollos, kind of a who's who of church planters during that era. I am quite confident that Corinth and the Corinthians' departure from what appears to be the gospel was not because the gospel was not faithfully proclaimed or well taught to them. And it makes their rapid departure from living in a godly way even more remarkable. Paul hasn't been away from this church but a year or two uh, when he hears, in the most charitable sense, that it is a dumpster fire. Paul has already written this church one letter that he mentions in 1 Corinthians five nine, and hears and is talking to them about sexual immorality. So things have gone off the rails pretty quickly. Paul then receives an oral report that his first letter was misunderstood. And so the church continues to be plagued by a milieu of problems and issues. That is then further complicated by a letter that he receives from the Corinthians where it is very clear that they are confused about Christian marriage, divorce, corporate worship, and the bodily resurrection. And thus, you have the context and setting for this rather substantial letter known to us as 1 Corinthians. In this epistle, we find Paul dealing with some very practical matters, the heart of which being that Christian conduct is marked by a love for one another and consideration of each other that should be characterized by humility and a desire for unity. It is how he grounds his arguments for these things in the gospel that we will consider this morning. So if you are not already there, go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1. Surveying 1 Corinthians. The apostle begins this letter in his typical fashion by greeting the church and thanking the Lord for them. However, he then pivots rather quickly to point out how they've become divisive by arguing about which ministries each of them are following. I think we all recognize this a little bit in ourselves. Here in America, we tend to be a celebrity culture, and most of us, I imagine, have been helped by Bible teachers that have large platforms. Paul's caution here is not to impugn any man's ministry, but that so much in Christ is preached, that is the rallying point not the person preaching that message. We then arrive at our text for this morning, starting in verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Paul then goes on to further elaborate on the singular importance of proclaiming Christ crucified the unity in the church that this should bring and how preachers steward the great mystery that is Christ. And it is in light of those things that he goes on to address a wide array of practical matters that range from simple misunderstandings to outright licentious sinful behavior. So is this a church that you would want to join? To say things are going well would be lying. It's Hardly a thriving body of believers. How would you counsel these folks? For some of us, I imagine that we would just wring our hands of it and join Second Baptist Church down the road. For others, we would come up with a 10-step plan to get the house in order. But what does Paul do here? How does Paul make his appeal for this church to godly living? Put your eyes back on verse two, so at the very beginning of the letter. Verse two, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Did you guys catch that? Sanctified saints. Similar Greek words mean holy or set apart for God's service. It's hard to believe that Paul is calling these folks sanctified saints with what he is about to address later in the letter. Yet, Paul is reminding them of something that is true, that in Christ Jesus, they are a holy people, a royal priesthood. They are set apart for his glory, and thus, there is a right way to live in Christ. I would actually go so far as to say that this is a thesis statement that will help you understand the rest of the letter. So let's put a pen in verse two and we'll circle back to that later this morning. And with that in mind, we'll turn our attention back to our text for this morning. Reflection one, preaching the gospel. When a pastor stands before a congregation to preach on a Sunday morning, we can essentially do one of two things. We can preach the gospel to you, acknowledging how the law is subservient to it. Or we can intermix the two without separating those categories. So let's define terms as it'll be helpful in our understanding of why this distinction is important. The law is all the things that are required of you to be right before God. Most pointedly, this could be summed up in the Ten Commandments. On the other hand, the gospel is Christ as the fulfillment of the law for you. And so, as believers in Christ, the law is not used for your justification. It is used for our sanctification, as it now guides how we are to live. You see, the law is good. It is. The psalmists attest to it over and over and over again. The law of the the Lord should delight our hearts. It should bring us joy. But only in Christ. Because your own efforts are perfect at best, and the law could never save you. The law could only condemn you. And thus, the law is subservient to the gospel. If We don't preach that clearly and tend to mix the two. We have a tendency to misunderstand both justification and sanctification. We replace fear, we replace hope with fear, and we replace freedom with bondage. You see, the law and the gospel are distinct, but they are perfectly harmonious as they both point to our need for Christ. The law by showing us our great need for a Savior, and the gospel by showing us Christ as the end of the law for righteousness. I would submit to you that Paul is doing that very thing here at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. In light of this very imperfect church, let's further consider our text this morning, verses 17 and 18. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be empty of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Paul is pointing to something rather remarkable here. Corinth was the stomping ground of the intellectual elites at the time. Uh, in particular, wise speakers giving thoughtful life insights was in particular demand and you thought that the self-help movement was modern. Instead, Paul is pointing out that the power of the cross does not rely on the persuasiveness of our arguments. We preach clearly what Christ has done at the cross for sinners, knowing that across all times and all lands, that that message has the power to save. And further, that message is supernatural. It doesn't rely on me to do anything but to proclaim it as true. Paul goes on in verse 19. Paul's quoting from Isaiah 29 here. Uh, Jesus actually uses Isaiah 29 similarly in Matthew 15, talking to the Pharisees. We've said it before in this church, but is a crucified savior ever a story that you would have written? I doubt it. Your Lord coming to earth as both God and man as a baby. You are God and king humbling himself to death on a cross for you and I. It's hard to reconcile, but God is pleased to save us through means that we cannot comprehend. Looking down at verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to both Jews and Greeks. a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Paul continues here, noting how Jesus' critics would continue to demand more and more signs of him, as if his, previously, his previous displays of power were ineffective to already demonstrate his divinity. Yet, consider even the testimony of Nicodemus in John three two. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. It wasn't more signs that they needed, was it? Or consider the Greeks in Acts 17. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Arapago, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? We bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. I've heard Acts 17, uh, in this passage in particular, discussed in a way that is applauding Paul for engaging the Greeks at a philosophical level to persuade them to believe, but that is not what's happening here. Paul is preaching Jesus and the resurrection. You should thank more 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Further, Luke isn't commending the Greeks for their wisdom. He's criticizing them for their idleness. They spend their time doing nothing except telling or hearing something new. There is an intrinsic appeal to reason and to wisdom that we all have. We want to see. We want to reason our way, to belief. But God works with power through Christ. Think of Paul's language in Romans 1. God through creation has given general revelation to us all so that all are without excuse. That doesn't rely on signs. It doesn't rely on eloquent speech or the wisdom of the world. It is only on Christ alone that we can behold the wisdom and the power of God. Consider Colossians 1, 15, 20. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on heaven, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That sounds like the definition of the power and wisdom of God, does it not? That is the what is largely known as the psalm or the hem of Christ. That it really is all about his preeminence in all things. Continuing in our passage this morning, verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling brothers Paul has spoken to the power of the cross of Christ, its sufficiency for salvation, how incomprehensible a crucified Savior sounds to the world and now God's sovereignty in saving ordinary people for his extraordinary purposes. You see, the Lord has a remarkable history of redeeming ugliness for beauty. Consider Jesus' own genealogy. Rahab ran a brothel in Jericho. Ruth was a foreigner. Bathsheba was a Hittite and already married. Abraham kept putting his wife in compromising situations due to his fear of man. David can't seem to get out of his own way and seemingly breaks nearly all ten commandments. Indeed, though, in many ways we are all the same there really is no reason to boast in God's presence. Consider Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Friends, you see what Paul is doing here, do you not? He is beginning the letter by preaching the gospel to the Corinthians, because it is in light light of who they are in Christ that should then drive how they live. That is the folly of preaching crucified, and risen Savior for you and for me. Reflection two, the gospel's sufficiency for all of life. We're going to spend some time now turning our attention to the last two verses uh, in 1 Corinthians 1. If you take nothing else away from time this morning. I hope this point will sustain and nourish your souls as we head into another year. God, in his mercy, has set you apart as holy people, made and sustained for his glory. In eternity past, our God decided to save you through Christ's death and give you hope through his resurrection. Further, our Savior is clear that he will keep you, that he will not lose even one of his sheep, that through Christ and his benefits, you are not only presently justified, but you also share in that reality in the past, the present, and the future, because Christ is faithful to you and will ensure that you are one day glorified with him. John six forty-four. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. John ten twenty seven to thirty. My sheep. Hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Romans eight twenty-eight to 30 And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Which brings us back to 1 Corinthians 1, verses 30 and 31, starting in verse 30. And because of him, you are... In Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. As some of you know about me, I generally think defining terms, particularly as it pertains to doctrinal and theological matters, is pretty important. God's character is fundamentally true, and so we trust the words used in Scripture. Are purposeful and intended to convey things in a consistent, truthful, and intentional way. So I think we'll be helped by defining these terms righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Righteousness. Standard definition of the word would mean to have the quality of being morally true or justifiable. But as believers, this word actually has quite a bit more significance for us because righteousness for us means to be justified in the sight of a God who is perfectly righteous, is perfectly moral, and that is true in and of himself. Because he is the ultimate standard of righteousness, his law then defines for us the bar we must meet in order to possess righteousness. Full stop here. What does Isaiah 64, 6 say about our righteous deeds? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. That is quite literally a rather damning indictment of our good works. But where does righteousness come from if not from our works? Consider the soaring words of Romans 5. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So know that Christ is and will be your righteousness completely and fully yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and all the days to come. Sanctification. The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines it well. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness i also like to think of sanctification as meaning growing in christ likeness growing more like christ remember at the beginning where we put that pen in verse two paul called the corinthians what sanctified in other words something that was presently true of them in scripture we see this in two ways and the late systematic theology professor John Murray distinguished it well with the terms definitive sanctification and progressive sanctification. So again, two ways of, to define sanctification, definitive sanctification and progressive sanctification. And he would go on to describe it like this, I quote, In the New Testament, the most characteristic terms used with reference to sanctification are used not of a process, but of a once for all definitive act. Let me read that part to you again. In the New Testament, the most characteristic terms used with reference to sanctification are not of a process, but a once for all definitive act. Going on, it would therefore be a deflection from biblical patterns of language to think of, of sanctification exclusively in terms of a progressive work. Christ in his death and resurrection broke the power of sin. He triumphed over the gods of this world, the prince of darkness. He executed judgment upon the world and its rulers, and by that victory, delivered all those who were united to him from the power of darkness and translated them into his own kingdom. So intimate is the union between Christ and his people that they were partakers with him in all these triumphal achievements and therefore died to sin and rose with Christ in the power of his resurrection. End quote. So then, united to Christ, your sanctification is a sure and present reality. It is something that is true of you now. And it is in that identity that you, as one who are sanctified, seek to be Christ-like ever more so day by day. But you are presently sanctified, set apart, and holy. And so there is a right way that we should live. And that is great news. The third term, redemption. Redemption. The dictionary defines redemption as the action of saving or being saved from sin, error, or evil. Or the action of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for payment or a clearing of debt. So Then the question to ask is, what is Paul telling the Corinthians that they are gaining possession of? This brings my mind to Ephesians 1 where Paul elaborates on the blessing of Christ for us, the eternal hope of our inheritance with him. So hear these words from Ephesians 1. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, the plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you first heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So, as we consider these last two verses in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul is clearly pointing this wayward church to the sufficiency of Christ for their justification. His sufficiency and making them more like him in this life, and us as well. In Christ's sufficiency to gain an eternal inheritance with him in glory. That, my friends, is the completeness of his benefits held out for you. Paul is making sure that the Corinthians understand that how they live, the choices that they make, the things that they do, are all rooted in their status in Christ and the fullness of it. What does God have for you in 2024? To cling ever more to Christ and to hold him out to others. Concluding with an illustration. From the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, there is a lot of language about the power of water. Standing next to a large, roaring rapid, you are immediately in awe of the strength with which it flows. The Bible is replete with images of rivers and powerful bodies of water. Consider the four mighty rivers flowing out of the Garden of Eden, the flood, Israel crossing the Red Sea, or the river visions of Ezekiel, Zechariah, the Apostle John. God uses this imagery to convey the washing away of sins and the life-giving nature of his purposes in the world. Standing next to a raging rapid, you can see why God has chosen to convey himself and the things that He is doing like that. You and I both know that if we were to wade into that rapid and try to change its course even for a moment, we would be completely overwhelmed. In fact, we could not thwart its power even for the briefest of moments, and so it is with the Lord. This part is a little bit interactive. I know we're a reformed church don't worry. Look around the sanctuary just real quick. Everybody just look up, look at the height and depth of this place. A powerful river would move the volume of water that would fit in this room every single second. So this whole room, every second. The most powerful rivers in the world would move this volume of water 800 times over every single second. It's hard to imagine. Yet, the life-giving nature of what Christ is doing in the world is communicated to us in the form of the river of life. You see, when God gives you eyes to behold the beauty of Christ, you are, in a sense, being called onto a boat that will carry you home to that great city of God. Imagine yourself standing next to a great river. You're very high up on a large mountain, close to the river's source. You are with other saints. You're with the folks here in the room with you today. You've been given a boat and a guide to travel this river to a beautiful city that you can just barely make out in the distance. Somewhat alarming, however, is that this city is far below you in a great plain. And all around this river are high rock walls And you quickly realize that once you are on this river, you are not safe anywhere else but inside the boat. As the water moves down towards the plains, the rush of the rapids, the echo off the cliff walls is deafening, and the river itself appears full of danger. It is obvious to you that this river has the power to move you and your crew with no effort, but in order for this journey to not be even more difficult, And it already appears you'll need to row alongside the others to avoid any number of obstacles that at this moment would seem to impede you getting to that marvelous city that this river of life flows through. And so Paul is very much describing the Christian life in a similar way. God has brought you to a place where you desire to be with him in that far off city. He has provided you the means to get there through faith and trust in what Christ has done for you. He has given you a helper in the Holy Spirit to guide you on the way. And so it is only by remaining in Christ, clinging to him and calling others to do the same, that we will be carried along in 2024 and the years to come. We labor to love God and to serve the saints around us by staying united and rowing together. We seek opportunities to walk in the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us. And the pastors of your church seek to encourage and equip you through Christ that your labor is not in vain, that the journey is hard, but that the joy of its reward will be inexpressible. Ezekiel 47. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. for the temple faced east, the water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. And then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate that faces towards the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward, with a measuring line in my hand, this man measured a thousand cubits. Then he led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. He measured a thousand. Again, he measured a thousand, led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand. It was a river that I could not pass through. For the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? On the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees of food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water that flows the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Zechariah 14. On that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. and It shall continue in the summer as in the winter. and The Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one and his name, one. Revelation 22. Then the angel there will be no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Paul knew exactly what issues that he was needing to address in this church caught in sin, but instead of grounding his letter in fear of consequence, he instead roots it in Christ, who is the wisdom and power of God for us, the sufficiency of preaching Christ crucified and risen for us, and the wisdom of Christ for your justification, sanctification, and glorification. May we be ever more encouraged in Christ as we enter this next year, knowing that it is in his power that we will be carried home to that distant and far off city, where we will enjoy the Lord's table as an actual feast and not the hope of things to come, where our present trials will be increasingly further and further behind us as we experience the joys of eternity, and where every day really will be better than the day before it. Let's pray.